0: little fella. I didn't know that I had ADHD. I do now, from what I've been told. Uh, but uh, uh, my mum would say, well, he's, he's a little bit on the naughty side, but, you know, God's got something for him. Anyway, at around about eight years of age, I was sitting in the, um, in the chair and I was uh, there with uh, our Sunday school teacher, who, by the way, was a, a Scotsman. His name was Ian McColl, very Scottish name. And Ian McCall was the kind of guy that uh, would preach the old hellfire and brimstone. Didn't matter whether it was a Sunday school lesson or whether it was preaching in church. Uh, we copped at both barrels. And uh, at the end of the, that morning, he, he said to all the boys in the class, including myself, he said, does anybody here want to give their heart to Jesus this morning? And I put my hand up. And I'm sure uh, that that was an answer to my mum and dad's prayers because I was eight years old and I put my hand up and I gave my heart to the Lord that morning and I ran home and I said, ran in the door and I said, mum, dad, guess what? I'm saved. Well, you know, it was, some people might say you could have knocked them over with a feather, but, uh, you know, they smiled. They, they were just, uh, they, they loved that idea because I was, I was the last one in the family to get saved. Um, I have uh, two sisters and one brother, and uh, although uh, a couple of them have moved away from the Lord a little bit, uh, I have one brother that's still sitting, uh, that is very, very close. Most of you would probably know him, John. Um, he's been here a couple of times. Um, well, as life went on, I, um, I uh, grew up uh, into my teens, got involved with Christian youth camps, got involved in Emmaus Bible School. Um, studied a fair bit. and uh, But then I was married at 19. And uh, I was married for 19 years. And then at the end of 19 years, my first wife said, that's it. As far as I'm concerned, our marriage is finished. I'm walking out. And she said, I'm going to divorce you in, two, in 12 months' time. Well, I was... You know, I came from a family who believed very much that marriage was for life. I believed that marriage was for life. And this, by the way, happened after I'd been to Bible college. And I remember our spiritual warfare lecturer saying to us very clearly that you know, some of you will come through college and Satan will attack you after you've been here. And he will do anything he can to destroy you. I felt like I was about to be destroyed. I was so close to taking a number of pills and ending it. But at that moment, I got a phone call from my middle boy, Ben, who was not not living with me at the time. And he said to me, he said, Dad, please don't do anything stupid. I love you too much to lose you. And that hit volumes. The next phone call, of course, was from a pastor from another church. And God, at that moment, you know, changed things. But then I didn't completely come back to the Lord at that particular time. I continued to get deeper into despair and and so on and did things that I regret. But praise God for his grace and his mercy because he got me to the point where I literally got on my knees and I cried out and I said, Lord, I don't care what you do with the rest of my life, but I just need you to look after me while I uh, you know, live my life for you. And it was, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it was two weeks after that prayer that I met Julie. And praise God, we've been now... The next year in May, we'll be celebrating 24 years of marriage. And it just goes to show that God has plans for each and every one of us. My fears were great. I thought, that was it, that was it, that was the end. I thought, you know, how can God use me, ever, even though I've been to Bible college? But what a wonderful blessing, God's grace and his mercy lifts you up from the pit of despair, and then puts you on the rock of Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, I just want to uh, emphasise something rather interesting. I was reading a book the other day called, uh, a while back now, it's called The Fourth Quarter, and it's written by a gentleman called Don Sisk. Who knows Don Sisk? Yeah, Don Sisk is actually the instructor uh, in Bible and missions at West Coast Baptist College. Believe it or not, he's still doing that. Just a, He's a little bit over 90 years of age and he's still doing that. And he wrote a book called The Fourth Quarter and at the end of the book he said, you will know when God is finished with you here on earth because you will be standing right in front of him. Until a person draws their last breath on this earth, God can still use you. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're five, whether you're 95. I I took a a, a senior's service this morning up at Avio, and what was wonderful to hear was that there were three ladies in there that are in excess of 90 years of age. So God's not finished with them yet either, and so on. So what I'd like to do is uh, just read this passage, uh, which is Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3, and then we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to just lead us in what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, Okay, so we'll just open it up. Isaiah chapter 43. If you've got your Bibles there, please turn to it. Isaiah 43 and verses 1 to 3. And it says this, "But uh, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is greater than all our fears, Lord God. And Father, there are many things that are going on in the world that would easily cause us to fear uh, right now. But Lord, when we focus in on you, when we focus in on your word, Lord, there is no reason to fear because, as your word says, perfect love casts out fear. And, Father, we just thank you uh, for this time together. We pray that you will uh, just lead us uh, as we go through this passage and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, see if I can get this clicker to work. Uh, Turn it. It's on. Yes, good. All right, so what we have in these verses and indeed throughout the whole chapter are words of comfort and encouragement to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah who had been taken captive in Babylon in around about 586 BC and had begun, literally begun their 70 years of captivity, which was prophesied by Jeremiah in 609 BC. And we see that in Jeremiah 25 verses 10 to 12. To put these verses into context, we need to go back a little bit uh, slightly and of course, uh, if I can just get this to work, let me just see if it works. Uh, we'll go forward. Okay. After taking out the northern kingdom of Israel in approximately 721 BC, it was a year. It was the year of 701 BC when the Assyrian king Sennacherib led a campaign against Judah and its king Hezekiah. We see that in Isaiah 36 verse 36 uh, chapter 36 and 37, and then. King Hezekiah, of course, fell on his knees and prayed. He sought the Lord for deliverance. And then something incredible happened. God sent one angel in answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And that one angel took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. I mean... Would you have loved to have been a fly on the wall and watching that, uh, seeing what took place? Because the Jews woke up the next morning and they walked out and what did they see around Jerusalem? But they saw 185,000 dead corpses on the ground. Some might say that's a little bit morbid, but my goodness, could you imagine the joy and the relief on the Jewish peoples in their, in their minds and on their faces? They were just about to be taken out. They were just about to be wiped out by Sennacherib. In fact, he was going to go in there and he was going to literally wipe them out. But Sennacherib, of course, as we know, was sent packing back to Nineveh. And it was only a couple of more months after that that two of his sons actually took him out. Mm. So that then brings us uh, to the fact that in 701 BC, just a little bit prior to Sennacherib coming, Hezekiah falls ill. He prays to the Lord. And the Lord responds through Isaiah and grants Hezekiah another 15 years of life. We saw that, we see that in in Isaiah 38 verses 4 and 5. And then in 686 BC, who comes along but Manasseh, Hezekiah's son. Now we all know who Manasseh was. He was an evil king. He comes to the throne and he quickly leads the people of Judah into sin. We've only got to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 33 to see that. After Manasseh, there were a series of kings in Judah until Zedekiah who reigned from 597 to 586 BC at the time of the Babylonian invasion and captivity. So the setting for what Isaiah writes in chapter 43 is towards the very end of the Jews' captivity in Babylon. Let's have a look at this next slide. If we have a look at this slide, we see that Cyrus, king of Persia, defeats the Babylonians in around about 538 BC and issues a decree that permits the Jews to return to their land, to rebuild the city and the temple. And we can just go to Ezra chapter 1 to see that. The timeline on the screen gives us an idea of when and what takes place after Cyrus defeats Babylon. I did a little bit of figuring here and it was rather interesting because do you remember when uh, that uh, the Jews were told that they were going to go into Babylon for 70 years? Now it's interesting because if we look at this timeline here, it basically shows that uh, some of them probably would have returned a little bit before the end of that 70 years. But what's rather interesting is if you have a look at uh, 586 B.C. and then take 515 or, say, 516 B.C. out of that, which is roughly when they believe that the, uh, the second temple was completed, that's 70 years. Okay? So it's rather interesting Uh, in terms of, uh, not that I'm into numerology or anything like that, but it's certainly uh, quite an interesting uh, fact. What's interesting to note here, though, is the prophetic words of Isaiah 43 were written by Isaiah prior to Babylon being a world power, as it is believed that the book of Isaiah was written sometime during the ministry of Isaiah, which was 740 to about 701 BC. It's good to note here the context of the last half of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 through to chapter 66. As the famous commentator Warren Wiersbe points out, it is in this half of the book that Isaiah sought to comfort the Jewish remnant in Babylon after their difficult years of captivity and to assure them that God was with them and would take them safely home. When we look at this section of the book, what's significant is the number of times God tells his people, fear not, and how frequently he issues them of his, he, sorry, he assures them, I should say, of his pardon and his presence. So what's God saying in chapter 43, verses one to three to his people? And what can we glean from this passage? What do we see first in verse 1 of chapter 43? We see God reminding the Jewish remnant that were there of who he is. He says, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. The key words here are very clearly created and formed. God is telling his people that he holds claim to them that they are his creation. And it is he who formed them into a people and a nation. To understand this a little bit more fully, we need to go back to the time of Abram and see the promises that God made to him. What did he say? He said in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And then he says, "And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we know that from Abraham whom God renamed, sorry, from Abram, whom God renamed Abraham, came Isaac, and from Isaac came Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, and from Jacob came 12 sons, from whom came the 12 tribes of Israel. So effectively, through God's word, the nation of Israel came into being. What's significant here, though, is that all this came about by the word of God. The prophetic, word, the prophetic words that he spoke to Abraham came to pass in that the nation of Israel was born through the 12 sons of Jacob. So what God is reminding the remnant of people in Babylon, can you imagine what they were, they were feeling? They were there for nearly 70 years. They would have been feeling despair, some of these people. Now, there were, we know that there were those people who assimilated there were people in Babylon who got used to the the cushy lifestyle of living in Babylon, the city. You know, because remember, you know, Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was a beautiful place, uh, all that sort of thing. So there would have been some of the Jews that got really used to the idea and some of them even stayed when the remnant came back. Now, let's look at the words that follow. These words would have given them strength, hope and encouragement as the remnant that would b- begin the long journey back to their homeland. And they would face many trials, difficulties, hardships as they took the journey back to rebuild the Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, what are the words? Uh, and again, these must have been words of comfort to those who were coming to the end of their captivity, as we said. For some, this must have brought an element of despair and concern as well because it was a long journey back. Remember, Babylon was a far country. It was a long way away from Jerusalem. But for those who took God at his word, it would have been a reason to rejoice. The God who had created them as a nation and the people were, was now telling them, even amidst their circumstances, to fear not. But then he gives them a reason to fear not. It's because he, the almighty God of heaven and earth, has redeemed them and called them by name and declared that they are his. We see this in his words to them in, in the second half of verse, uh, verse 1. For I have redeemed thee, I have called you by name, thou art mine. The implication here is they are his, they're his treasured possession, and they still are today. I don't care what anyone says. God's not finished with the Jews yet. They are still his chosen people, without a shadow of a doubt. And one day the pause button is going to come off and he's going to start dealing with them again, without a shadow of a doubt. Just as these words would have been comfort to the Jews in Babylon, so too are they comfort to those of us who are in Christ Jesus because in Jesus we are redeemed, are we not? We have been bought with a price, a precious price, Jesus' own blood that was literally poured out on the cross of Calvary for us while we were yet in darkness. That's exactly what it says in Romans 5.8. It says very clearly, but God commended his love or commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it. None of us deserved it. But because of God's love, He sent Christ to die for us. In Jesus we have been adopted into the family of God. You've only got to look at Ephesians 1 and see some of these things. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6 says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. You know the interesting thing about Roman adoption? for example Roman adoption when they when they adopted a child that child's past was completely blotted out his debts were completely abolished he was given a complete new name he took on the name of the family that he was going into and on top of that he then was entitled to all the inheritance that the rest of the other the blood side of the family was entitled to. Put that in perspective with our, with our Christianity. And let's think about it for a little bit. Have we got a reason to fear? No. And if that's not enough, just as God tells the Jews in Babylon, thou art mine, Jesus himself gives us as believers a reason to fear not. In John 10, 29, he says, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Hmm. And then we have the words of Paul in Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even Satan himself can separate us from God's love. Good reason to fear not, wouldn't you say? Now in verse 2 of chapter 43, God combines both what the Jews returning will face as they continue in Babylon and then as the remnant that will return to Jerusalem, some 42, uh, was around about 42,360 people. I'm just going to change this slide again because this this is a powerful slide. With Ezra, with an absolute assurance of his safekeeping, For them both now and on their journey. Not knowing what they would face on the journey back and when they got to Jerusalem, these words in Isaiah 43, verse 2, would have been a comfort to their ears. Listen to them again. When thou passest through the waters. He doesn't say, possibly you might pass through the waters or anything like that. He says, when thou passest through the waters. I will be with thee. And through the rivers, remember flooded rivers can be a bit dangerous. When they they pass through what seems like a flooded river, they, he says, they shall not overflow thee. Then he goes on to say, when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Simply put, God was not holding back here. He was telling them there will be difficulties. There will be trials. There will be times when you may feel overwhelmed. There will be times of tribulation and enemies against them. As we see from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the returning exiles were to face some great difficulties. The journey itself, as we said, was long, dangerous, and expensive. They were returning to a city in ruins with no proper homes, roads, or city institutions. They didn't have all the material resources they needed. They didn't at all return to Jerusalem, but spread out over the province of Judea. They had many enemies. Their land was actually the possession of another empire. Yes, they had all these things against them. But what were God's words to them in the middle of verse 2? Think of the still small voice of God. I will be with thee. The God who made heaven and earth, the God who brought their forefathers out of the land of Egypt, protected them, fed them, gave them water to drink from a rock in the desert. The same God who won their battles for them when they went into the promised land and wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers when they came against Jerusalem 163 years before in 701 BC. This same God who told them when they arrived in Babylon and, uh, to seek the peace of the city, Whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray to the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. This same God who was with and protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames of the fiery furnace, this same God was now telling the exiles who were returning to Jerusalem, I will be with thee. He didn't say, oh, well, you just go on your way and I'll think about being there with you. He, and he, he certainly didn't say, I possibly might be with you or you do everything right and I'll be with you. No, God just says, I will be with thee. The emphasis here is on the word Will no matter how difficult the journey, no matter what the trials and tribulations, no matter what they would come up against, God was promising the returning exiles that he would be with them. You know, Jesus said the same thing in, Joshua, in John chapter 16, verse 33. Let's have a look at what he says to his disciples. He says, These, he says, these things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Then he goes on to say, in this world, ye shall have tribulation. He doesn't say, oh, it's a possibility, or you might have tribulation. He says, ye shall have tribulation. But then I love these last words. Then he says to his disciples, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. Jesus, being the God of the universe, the God who created everything we see around us, is saying, I have overcome the world. There's every reason why we don't need to fear. Notice here, Jesus didn't say, as I said, you might have tribulation. No, he says, ye shall have tribulation. But just as the Jewish exiles returning to Jerusalem could take comfort in what God was telling them in Isaiah 43, verse 2, so too can we take comfort in Jesus' words of John 16:33. Yes, in this life, we will have tribulations and difficult times, some of which we may think are insurmountable mountains and cause for fear. But we need to keep coming back to Jesus' words, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. No matter what the obstacle or difficulty, in Christ, we can overcome. And what was their guarantee of what God was saying to them? God himself was their guarantee. Let's see what it says in verse 3. For I, God says, for I am the Lord thy God. Notice the term, I am. Where else do we see that? God said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, tell them, I am have sent you. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. God himself, the one who not only created the heavens and the earth, but also created them and formed them as a nation, who was the, he was their Saviour from all Who were against them. The God who declared that He would be their God and they would be my people. Jeremiah 32, verse 38. He, that is God Himself, was their guarantee. He would be with them every step of the way. I want to finish tonight with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Now, most of you guys have probably read some of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a preacher who lived from uh, 1834 to uh, 1894. He was only about 60 years of age when he died. But obviously, at that point, God had said, right, your job on earth is done. You're coming home. And Spurgeon wrote many words, but I'd like to read these ones to you. He says, about verse 3, he says, For I am the Lord thy God. He says, This is the grandest possible reason for not fearing fall back upon this when you have nothing else upon which to rely if you have no goods you have a god if thy gourd is withered thy god is still the same as he was as and as he ever was for i am jehovah thy god I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and sea before thee. And he has given infinitely more than that for us who are his people now. We are his people because we are grafted in through the precious blood of Christ. For he gave his only begotten son that he might redeem us with his precious blood. Now that we have have cost him so much... Is it likely that he will ever forsake us? Spurgeon just simply says it's not possible. God will never forsake us. And he tells us that. I love Hebrews 13:5, particularly the second part. What does Jesus say? I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And you know what? That word never there in the original Greek actually is past, present, and future tense. It basically means never, 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 never. And you can just keep going on to infinity. Jesus will never, ever abandon us. All through my marriage breakup, all through a couple of years when I was basically on my own and I thought I was never going to come out of it. God was there. He had a plan. He knew what he was doing. I had to have a few slaps around the back of the head. But finally, he got me on my knees and humbled before him. And it was then that my life was turned around. So that's what I wanted to leave with you tonight. I've probably gone a little bit over, but I hope it's been a blessing uh, indeed. So the key, if you take anything away from tonight, uh, anything, uh, if, you, if you forget about everything else, don't forget the words, fear not, for I am with you. Okay? Right, so that is our message. Um, Now